My lady, Fiametta Bianchini, was plucking her eyebrows and biting color into her lips when the unthinkable happened, and the Holy Roman Emperor's army blew a hole in the wall of God's eternal city, letting in a flood of half-starved, half-crazed troops bent on pillage and punishment. Italy was a living chessboard for the ambitions of half of Europe in those days. The threat of war was as regular as the harvest, alliances made in winter were broken by spring, and there were places where women bore another child by a different invading father every other year. In the great and glorious city of Rome we had grown soft, living under God's protection. But such was the instability of the times that even the holiest of fathers made unholy alliances, and a pope with Medici blood in his veins was always more prone to politics than to prayer. In the last few days before the horror struck, Rome still couldn't bring herself to believe that her destruction was nigh. Rumors crept like bad smells through the streets. The stonemasons shoring up the city walls told of a mighty army of Spaniards. Their savagery honed on the barbarians of the New World, swelled with cohorts of German Lutherans, fueled on the juices of the nuns they had raped on their journey south. Yet when the Roman defense, led by the nobleman Renzo de Ceri, marched through the town, touting for volunteers for the barricades, these same bloodthirsty giants became half-dead men, marching on their knees, their assholes close to the ground, to dispel all the rotting food and bad wine they had guzzled on the way. In this version, the enemy was so pathetic that even were the soldiers to find the strength to lift their guns— they had no artillery to help them, and with enough stalwart Romans on the battlements, we could drown them in our piss and mockery as they tried to scale their way upward. The joys of war always talk better than they play. Still, the prospect of a battle won by Urin and Bravura was enticing enough to attract a few adventurers with nothing to lose, including our stable boy who left the next afternoon. Two days later, the army arrived at the gates, and my lady sent me to get him back. On the evening streets, our louche, loud city had closed up like a clam. Those with enough money had already bought their own private armies, leaving the rest to make do with locked doors and badly boarded windows. While my gate is small and bandied, I have always had a homing pigeon sense of direction, and for all its twists and turns, Rome has long been mapped inside my head. My lady entertained a client once, a merchant captain who mistook my deformity for a sign of God's special grace, and who promised me a fortune if I could find him a way to the Indies across the open sea. But I was born with a recurring nightmare of a great bird picking me up in its claws and dropping me into an empty ocean. And for that and other reasons I have always been afraid of water. As the walls came into sight, I could see neither lookouts nor sentries. Until now we had never had need of such things, our rambling fortifications being more for the delight of antiquarians than for generals. I clambered up by way of one of the side towers, my thighs thrumming from the deep tread of the steps, and stood for a moment catching my breath. Along the stone corridor of the battlement two figures were slouched down against the wall. Above me, above them, I could make out a low wave of moaning, like the murmur of a congregation at litany in church. In that moment, my need to know became greater than my terror of finding out, and I hauled myself up over uneven and broken stones as best I could, 
until I had a glimpse above the top.